So I think that if Paul the Apostle were not only a letter writer but a songwriter, he'd have written something just like you've heard and he would have said to his friend Epaphras, go on down the road from our place here in Ephesus to that city called Colossae and sing this song to them, this first century city known for its buffet of gods. It's intense Caesar worship. It's incredible toleration for every lifestyle except one. The lifestyle of declaring that Jesus would be the only God worshipped and that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. It was Paul's intention that those folks in Colossae would have Jesus revealed to them to such a degree and such an impact in their life that their very lives would reveal Jesus to their neighbors and their neighbors would reveal Jesus to their neighbors and it would spread throughout that city because Paul was so overwhelmed by this truth which he writes to them. In Colossians, the second chapter, the 13th verse, he says this, when you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. We've been there that we are so stuck in our ways and so offensive to God and others that we cannot get to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean. The old arrest warrant concealed and nailed to the cross. See, here's the deal. He said, when you couldn't do anything about it, when you know that you are guilty, in Paul's day, when you owed debts and could not pay them, a certificate of debt was written up. 
and the one to whom you owed that debt could have you thrown into prison, and there on the prison door, your certificate of debt was nailed. And you couldn't get out until that debt was paid, which was pretty impossible because you're in jail. So you need someone who is wealthy enough to pay off your debts and loving enough to do it for you. And Jesus Christ said, I became your certificate of debt because all your debts were written on me. I was nailed to the cross. And you see, when the debt was paid, written across, was paid in full. In Jesus' day, paid in full was stated this way. It is finished. Paul goes on then to say this that he stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. See, when you overcame a power in those days, you took all their weaponry, threw it aside, and stripped them down naked and marched them through to say, these people are powerless. And Jesus Christ took all the evil and marched it and said, there is no power greater than me. For Paul said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And by him and through him and for him, everything has been created. Everything slants toward him. No other entity could do that. Nobody had the muscles to face that power. And nobody, nobody had the compassion to go after those who had caused him so much pain and love them back into his family. Nobody could do that except him. He loves us. So Pam and I were able to, a few weeks ago, spend a couple weeks in South Africa with our daughter and our son-in-law. And so they would work during the day, and so Pam and I had plenty of time to read and just lounge around and, and talk with each other. And so one day we took a walk down to a cafe that was close by, and we sat down, and, and the waitress came up, and she looked at Pam, and she said, you must be Christy's mother. We'd never met her before. But Christy and Jesse have been to that cafe many times. And she said, you're, you're Christy's mother. You're her mama. And we said, well, how did you know that? She said, I could see that a mile away. Which was interesting because she is of Indian descent in a country that uses kilometers, and she said a mile away. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> you see, not only do they look alike in many ways, they act alike. They have the same compassion for people. It's immense compassion for people. They have the same spontaneity that absolutely drives anybody who's organized crazy. <laughs> they have this wonderful passion for living and this, this desperate need to take risks. They just always want to take risks. And they also shop alike. That's a bad thing. But Christy is so much like Pam because it's in her DNA. So in this letter that Paul is writing to his friends, this song, if you will, he said, when you, when you came to Jesus, and he used this phrase, we've used it before, he said, when you came to the spot, you understood that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is the only way that you can get to a relationship with God. Christ in you, Christ in you, when Christ is in you, you get his DNA. So that when people see you, they'll say, man, from a mile away, you still look like Jesus. Because it's in your DNA. 
That's why he goes to such an extent to describe, and, and Pastor Jason did such a great, masterful job of describing this to you a few weeks ago. That's why he talks about our, our sexual relationships and, and, and our speech patterns, what we say, because he said that must, that must look like Jesus, that the DNA is in you. So when you have these these sexual and speech-related behaviors, when you have unbridled sexual appetites and license and untamed angry responses to each other, it does not look like his DNA because that kind of activity begins to deteriorate relationships at many levels, and it's not in Jesus' DNA. So he said the DNA that Jesus puts in you when he came into your life, when you by faith put your, your, your trust in him, when that happened, his DNA says, here's what your behavior should be. And that behavior is steeped deeply, deeply in real love. Now, say we've got a problem. Because if you go to a lot of people on the street that are not religious and don't go to church, and you say to them, just how would you describe the church? Generally, they will not say love. Not in America. In fact, what they'll talk about is what the church wants and what the church hates. So if you'll forgive me, I'm going to give you an opinion, and I'm going to just go on a a little trail here, so just bear with me. I am greatly disturbed and have troubles with a church who will go out and picket outside a funeral of one of our soldiers, man or woman, who have been killed in Afghanistan and declare that they are dead because God has judged this nation because of homosexuality. I have a problem with that, and I'll tell you why. First of all, for me to declare that I know that the activity that has happened is as a result of God's judgment puts me in the level of a prophet. That I'm declaring that I absolutely know that God did this because he told me. And see, the problem with that is in the Old Testament, if you spoke on behalf of God and you were wrong, you got stoned. You died. So we at the church need to be very careful what we say God said because God still holds it very close to him, and is highly offended, even as he was in the Old Testament. We just don't get stoned, but we do get judged. So I have a problem with us declaring that 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 is the case, that God is judging. Secondly, as I read the scriptures, Hebrews tells me that, first of all, he's going to judge the church before he judges the world. And if I look at the church in America today, we're still having trouble with sexuality and speech-related items. And he's not done with us yet. So before we begin to declare you're guilty outside the church, we better let Jesus judge us inside the church because we have issues. You're thinking now, boy, I'm sure glad I came here this morning. It's so sweet. You say, but wait, 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 wait. The whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing, that that whole thing about God judging them because of homosexuality, he's got to judge us. Well, wait a minute, just hold on. You want to know why God judged Sodom? Without guessing, Ezekiel, a prophet, spoke on God's behalf, and here's what he said. Ezekiel 16, he said, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me, therefore I removed them when I saw it. Perhaps the homosexual lifestyle was included in those sins, as I'm sure it was, but it was much further than that. And so 
when we look at how we respond to other people. When we say that God has brought judgment, we need to be sure that, that, that we understand what we're saying. Because here's, here's the deal. I read that when God judged Sodom, he first went to Abraham and said, I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham said, oh, do you have to because of the, right, of the righteous that are there? And God said, I won't judge if I can find 50. And Abraham negotiated with God to get it down to 10. If I can find 10 righteous, I won't destroy the country. I won't des- destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I won't do it. If God is judging America now, my question is, can we not find 10 righteous here? Are there not righteous? And if there's not, then there's something wrong with the church. If we are to respond as Jesus wants us to respond, because you know, we feel like we are the moral police of America and that we, by our morality and what we impose on others, should change our government. It's amazing to me that when Jesus showed up, he never talked about changing the Roman government. He talked about changing the heart of a man and a woman. And he said, the way that I will do that is not condemn them, but instead I will love them till they see who I am, and then through my love they can walk over into my holiness. He didn't lead with holiness, he led with love that would give them the opportunity to come into his holiness because he demands holiness. But his love brings us there. And so I say all of that, which I'm not going to charge you for, that was free. That if we are like Jesus, it is to be our love that opens the door for people to walk into a relationship with God that is then deemed holy. It is his DNA. And if it's his DNA, it's our DNA. And therefore, I want to say to you today that loving Jesus means loving people. We've got to do that. So he expresses how that happens in this letter. And so he continues, and Paul says in Colossians 3.12, these words, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So when I think about the love of God, I come up with three words, and, and, so, and the love that we should have for each other. So I want you to repeat these three words after me, if you will. Capacity. Longevity. Elasticity. Elasticity. Say them again. Say them with me again. Capacity, longevity, elasticity. See, I am amazed, and I don't know about you, but when I when I look at the fact that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, that only the lowest servant would would do, I go, okay, okay, that's that's possible. But what fascinates me is he's also washing the feet of the man who just sold him out for his death. Guys. You might, you might say, okay, in my humble love, I'll wash the feet of the guys that, that I go to hunting camp with. But not during hunting season. But would you wash the feet of the man who's having an affair with your wife? Mm-mm. It drowned him. Ladies, you say, well, I will wash the feet of the, of the girls I meet with over at Panera on Tuesday mornings. I would do that. But would you wash the feet of the lady who's telling lies about you and running your name through the dirt? Would you, would you, would you wash your feet? So that's what makes it so amazing that he washed the feet of this betrayer. How could he do that? 
it's described by a follower of Jesus named John, and he says this in John 13 as he describes this whole incident. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I want to propose to you this, that when you come into relationship with Jesus, when it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that your capacity suddenly increases. How did Jesus do this thing? Well, we read that he knew that he had come from the Father. He had this relationship with God, this father relationship, where any father who loves his son will see what his needs are, and out of his resources, he'll take care of him. He will supply everything that he needs. So he knows he has that relationship. He's full of that relationship. I mean, his father would speak to him once in a while and say, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. They talk every day. He says, I don't do anything my father doesn't tell me to do. So there's this wonderful intimacy and a God who supplies everything to him. There is this thought that he's going back to God so he knows how no matter how difficult his calling is and what his destiny is, he will arrive there safely. So no matter what happens and no matter what our challenges are, he's going to make it. And that he has the power to resist and overcome anything that gets in his way. He is filled to capacity with this fathering, with this rescuing, and with this power. I want to say to us today that when we came to Jesus, it is in our DNA that we now have this capacity, that we have the spirit of a father within us that looks at other people and says, I can come take care of you because I have such, such an excess of what my father is giving me that I can pour into you and not lose any of it. That I have this calling to come rescue you and God will take care of me when I come to help you and I don't have to worry about me because I will arrive where I need to arrive because my destiny is in his hands. I don't have to worry about gaining and holding on and hoarding. I can let it go and I have the power, the energy to do this because it's in me. It's in my DNA. What that produces in us is this thing that Paul describes as kindness. And kindness is a relaxed sharing. Do you know kind people? My wife's one of the kindest people I know. There's just this thing about her that when you meet her, you just, she's just relaxed and she will, just, she will give you anything you need because she has this capacity to do so. She's much better at the kindness thing than I am. I'm working on it. That's why God made her come be with me forever to try to shape me to be a kinder person. My wife, not during the 40-day fast, but my wife makes wonderful chocolate chips. Next Saturday, Pam, you're free. She makes the most wonderful chocolate chip cookies. I just love those things. And so she'll make those, and I can be working late at night and, and, and be heading out of the office and heading home knowing that what I want to have, and I know if my doctor's here, you're going to say you shouldn't eat those at night, but this is none of your business. Stay out of it. <laughs> so I will... I will come home, and in my mind, I'm thinking, ah, chocolate chip cookies. She made them today or yesterday. She made them, and, and she was baking them when I left this morning, and they're going to be there, and so they'll be fresh, and even if they're not, I can stick them in the microwave and make them really soft, and, and a cold glass of milk. Oh. 
And I walk in and she will, it may be late, and she'll be already in bed checking out Facebook. And, and, and I'll walk into the kitchen and pour a cold glass of milk and then I can't find the cookies. I'll look everywhere for the cookies. I'll walk in and say, where are the cookies? She'll go, oh, I knew you didn't want any, so I took them and gave them away at the office. <gasps> Am I in purgatory? What? I get grumpy because I wanted some chocolate chip cookies. Now, if I come home and she's baking cookies, and she says, here, 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 take some, and she gives me one, two, three, four, five glass of milk, and, and maybe another three or four dozen, and just, you know, just de- devour them, I'm full. I'm in capacity. Now, if you come over to visit me, and she's still baking them, and I've had my fill, I'll take a whole plate of cookies and say, here, you can have these. Take some. Why? Because I'm full. When you come to Jesus and it's Christ in you, you have capacity and you've got to recognize that, that you can give away to others because you are full. And kindness says, here, you can have these because I know I am full. I've got everything that I need. It then brings us also in this capacity that Paul describes as tender-hearted mercy. It's when you see suffering and misery and you want to attend to the wounds. A few years ago, xenophobia struck South Africa. There were many that were in poverty that were South Africans who were concerned because there were refugees, especially from Zimbabwe, coming in, and they felt that they were stealing their resources and their jobs. And so this fear, this panic broke out in South Africa, and so they attacked the refugees, killed them, beat them, robbed them of their goods, and burned down their homes. It swept through South Africa. Christy and Jesse had gone to their gathering of their community of faith and ran into a guy who had just gone through that. He would lost everything. He was a refugee. He would lost everything. They didn't say to him, be fed. I, I hope you find some food. Be clothed. I hope you find some clothing. I hope you find some lodging. They said, come live with us because the capacity is there. They gave him a place to live. They gave him food. They gave him clothing. Whatever he needed, they helped until he could get stabilized and back on his feet again. That's in you. It's part of the DNA that's already placed within you. You have that ability, that tender-hearted mercy. Love has a capacity to give out because it knows it's not losing anything. It's in our DNA. And really, surprisingly, within this capacity is this thing called humility. Humility has already received its award. You have within you humility. I have humility, and I'm proud of it. I'm kidding. See, here's humility. It's, it's, not, it's not saying, oh, no, it wasn't me. It was, it was it, I'm just, I'm just, thank you. No, no, here's Humility. There's this actor, his name is Jeff Bridges. You might recognize him, I think we have his picture. Jeff Bridges has reached the pinnacle of awards where he's received an Oscar. And so, because he's received this award, he doesn't feel this need to go back to Holmby Hills, if that's the place he was raised, and, and take the center leading role in little theater as they produce 
True grit. He doesn't have to do that in the little theater because he's already been on the large stage and he has been awarded, he's been applauded. In fact, he can now help others achieve what they need to in their field of acting because he's already arrived. There is this moment that when you recognize that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, and you spend enough time quietly before God searching who he is and trying to listen to him speak to you through his scriptures and even through his Holy Spirit, you will come to a place that you hear God tell you what he thinks of you and he will applaud you. And when God applauds you, you no longer need center stage because you have reached the pinnacle of whatever anyone would ever desire. When you know how God feels about you and you hear that applause, you know at that moment, you know that you don't have to be number one anyplace else because God loves you and takes care of you and is proud of you. And therefore, you can give freely. See, humility is in our DNA. I want to, I want to introduce to you uh, Tatiana and Krista Hogan. They're of Vernon, British Columbia. They're four-year-old twins. They're conjoined at the head. Now, what's amazing about these two is that they share a brain. It's amazing. And because they share a brain, are you ready for this? They can hear what the other one hears. They can see what the other one sees. They actually feel what the other one feels. Researchers said that they can be sitting there and one will turn to the other one and say, no, well, you, you haven't heard a conversation, but they've been having one. Back and forth. One will see an object over here with her eye, and this one who cannot see it will reach over with her hand and pick it up because of the way the brain is connected. So in the nine months or so that they were in the womb, there was this this joining together of their brain. So they're as one. There is within Jesus this DNA that tells us that we need to have longevity with each other. That is why the body of Christ cannot just pick up and move back and forth and and, and go from here to here and here. It's why it's got to stay together because in our longevity, we begin to join our heart together. And what that longevity produces as we hang out with each other is this. It produces gentleness and patience. And gentleness is simply this, tapping into the feelings of others. And some of you are so good at that. You, you spend enough time with people that you just, you, you understand the feeling. You, 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 you're, you're, you're picking it up. You're tapping into it. You see, if you're like me, you can go to a restaurant with your family and sit down for an enjoyable evening and somebody will come in close by with their family and they'll have an infant and that infant will start screaming during dinner. Ever been there? At that moment, I have no gentleness. I just want to say, please, please, just take the child away. Just go outside with the child. Waiter, I would like another Diet Coke and a roll of duct tape, please. (laughs) But you listen to that mom. She's not concerned about the noise. She wants to know why the child is crying. Why is there hurt? She's connecting. She's tapping into the feelings so she can heal the child. Do you know why Jesus is your high priest? Scripture says because he tapped into your feelings and therefore knows how to heal you. That is in our DNA. 
That is how we are to respond. But to do that, we have to be patient. Patient has self-restraint in bearing injury. So now I brought us to the spot that is the most difficult for us, even as followers of Jesus, because this is really where the work begins. This is the spot where it is really tough for us to go any further. This is the place that if we are patient and, and we will bear injury, this is the place where we don't want revenge, but we want remedy. But you say, but wait, wait, Reisner, you don't know how they wounded me. You, you don't understand that, that she ran off with my best friend. You don't understand that that my mom knew that my uncle was molesting me as a child and did nothing about it. You don't understand that wound. You don't understand that I told her, that my friend, everything about the situation and then she blabbed it out of confidence. She blabbed it and now no one wants me around. You don't know how that destroyed me. You don't know how I was bullied. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know that wound. So what do you do when the community, and especially the community of faith, does not live out their DNA? Because we mess up love. What do you do when you, you, you've trusted and now been betrayed? I think we need to understand that built within us in our DNA is this elasticity. And I think it's so, so wonderfully described, and I shared it with this to, to you a, a couple years ago. It is said to be a true story that during World War II, these group of friends lost one of their comrades in battle. And so they were looking for a place to bury him, and they, they knew there was a Catholic church down the road, so they went down to the Catholic church, and there was a cemetery, and so the priest came out and said, what can I do for you? And they said, can we take our friend and bury him in your cemetery? The priest said, is he Catholic? He said, No. He said, well, you can't bury him in here. Well, what do we do? He said, well, just bury him outside the fence. He's close to the fence, but outside the fence. It's the best I can do. They were, they were just heartbroken, and so they, they, because of the death and this response, but they buried him, and they went on their way, and then they came back the next day to just give their final goodbyes before they were moving out. And when they showed up, they realized that the body was now inside the graveyard. See, during the night, the priest didn't move the body. He moved the fence and put it around the grave. What they called that in the New Testament was bearing with each other. Paul described it this way in Colossians 3.13. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you because remember the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others. That, that phrase, making allowance, is the same phrase of bearing with each other, and it actually literally means large-hearted. It's finding a way, a way to get the person who's offended you back in your heart. You purposely are trying to get them back in your heart, and they offended you. It is to stretch beyond our internal fence to make room. And there's only one way I know how to do that. And Paul makes it clear. Loving people means forgiving wounds. Where are you wounded? 
You know, the thing that still bothers you. You say you're over it, but it still bothers you. You see that person and you, you get on the other side of the street so you don't have to see them face to face. You know, you, it's the person you think about and you say, you know, I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. They'll, they'll get theirs. That's not in Jesus' DNA. And you know why? Because it is so unhealthy. Unforgiveness infects our health. Reliving the event over and over again as we do, planning how we are going to get payback, we begin a deterioration within our own life. Francis Frangipane talks about it this way. You have the quote. It says this, that bitterness is unfulfilled revenge. That's why Paul the Apostle made it very clear to the other city in Ephesus when he said to them, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. There's a reason for that. The author to the book of Hebrews says it this way. He says this, make sure no one gets left out of God's generosity. Now, just let me stop here. Who wants to be left out of God's generosity? When God is healing people, do you want to be left out? When God is, is blessing so that you are prosperous and, and you get a raise, and people are getting raises and, and income's coming in, do you want to be left out? When God's saying, here, I'm giving you a mate for life that you're just gonna, he's, he's blessing you with, with wonderful relationships, you want to be left out? I don't want to be left out. So he says this, keep a sharp eye out for the weeds of bitter discontent or bitterness. A thistle or two gone to seed can ruin a whole garden in no time. He says, I'll tell you who's going to get left out. Those who are bitter. Understand bitterness. Bitterness is a root that is watered by unforgiveness. And when it's watered by unforgiveness, the roots grow stronger and deeper and the offense grows bigger. In fact, the offense grows bigger than it was on the day of its inception. It will grow inside of us and begin to form our lives. I've seen people who bitterness has even changed their facial features. You can look at them and you can see strain and bitterness in their face. It's there. In their conversation, no matter what you talk about, they will finally get back down to their offense and how it has hurt them for years. And it will get to their slander and their gossip. And in fact, the only people that are attracted to others who are bitter are bitter people. And you get this whole fraternity of bitter people. How do I get over that? How do, how, do, how do I get free of that? The release of a debt provides your freedom. Not just the freedom for the person who offended you, but especially for the one who has been offended. Until I don't want or expect something from that person, I have not yet forgiven. I thought that I had forgiven. This happened to me a couple years ago. <clears throat> I thought I had forgiven someone, a friend who had offended me. I thought I'd forgiven them, and, and I would tell people I'd forgiven. I've forgiven. I've forgiven. I'm great. I'm, oh, I'm just great. I'm forgiven. It's just, oh, it's good. <laughs> it's just, it's gone. It's gone. And so I'm reading this book, and, and suddenly this whole concept comes to me. You're still holding a debt. Oh, no, I've forgiven. I'm, just, I'm a pastor. I forgive. It's great. I, I love people. No, you're holding a debt. What's the debt? Here's the debt. I wanted that person to come back and tell me they were wrong. Then I'd let go of it. And God said to me, you're holding a debt. 
you haven't forgiven. You've got to let go of that. You've got to be like Jesus, who while he was still being harassed on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, meaning I'm letting go of the debt. Because if I don't, now hang on, if I don't, Jesus can't forgive me. Oh, wait a minute. This is God and this is love, love, love. Jesus loves us. So he's got to forgive. No, he doesn't. He can't. It's against the rules. What rules? Listen to this. Jesus said this, Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, what? Your Father will not forgive your sins. Over. Done. No qualifiers. That's the deal. You're immobilized. You're not going any further in your relationship with God. The engine has stalled. You're stuck there. The roots are going down. And it's starting to become bitter. And it's forming you at that moment because you can't go any further. So he said, you've got to let go of the debt. I know what I do. I don't feel like I did. No, just make the decision to let go. The feelings will follow. See, and that's, I told you that's the tough part. And there's even one that goes further than that that's tough. It is this. The Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, talks about love. And it talks about what love does. And love always protects. Not only do you have to let go of the debt, but you've got to be concerned about protecting that person from the evil that's attacking them. So when do I know that I have forgiven? When I'm praying God's best on them. A couple weeks ago in Northampton, England, six guys attacked a jewelry store. It was kind of a smash and grab thing. And people inside the store tried to come out and they pushed them back in and terrorized them. And they would have gotten away with it except for this unexpected hero. Take a peek at this. Northampton Town Centre on Monday morning, a prominent jeweller's attacked, staff terrified as sledgehammers smashed through the windows. But what's this? From out of the distance and at a speed belying her 70-plus years comes the handbag heroine. With no regard for her own safety, the pensioner seems to fancy her chances against the gang of six, swinging again and again with the only defence she has. So surprised are the would-be robbers that two of them fall off one of the bikes. It is only then that any of Northampton's other brave residents are brave enough to get stuck in. They restrain one of the thieves, his getaway vehicle never getting very far, unlike the actions of this more mature of crime fighters. She was absolutely amazing. I mean, we were terrified. We locked the door, we hid under the desk, we were really scared. And then we looked outside and, God love her, she was running down the road with a handbag in the air, banging them on the back of uh, uh, the helmet with their handbag. Four of the six have now been arrested. Their Monday morning mayhem foiled by this super brave super grand. And should any of this pensioner's pals ever think of cheating at bingo, well, I'd probably think again. Richard Palo, ITV News. So here's the deal. Hurting people hurt people. So you're, you're in this process, and now you, you are told by Jesus you have to forgive, which means not only do you let go of the debt, 
but you know that they are also being attacked by something evil in their life, and it is our responsibility to go to them and see what we can do to help rescue them. And people will say, well, who would have thought that you'd have gone through the defense? Exactly. But you see, it's in your DNA. Is that not what Jesus did for us? That while we were yet sinners, his enemies, he came and rescued us? So we come to them and say, here, I want to forgive. Now, now I just want to pause here and just give me a moment to do this because there's always a danger that when I'm talking about forgiveness, there's some of you who will go to someone who, is, who has highly offended you and hurt you and wounded you and you, you give this bridge of forgiveness and hoping that they will walk across it into the holiness of Jesus and change their behavior, but they don't change their behavior. Paul the Apostle called that a dog going back to its own vomit. That's going to happen. It doesn't mean that you go back to the vomit with them. So I want to say specifically to you ladies who are here that are in a situation where you have been abused or beaten, even verbally abused, you have to forgive, but you don't go back to the vomit. You give God time to work in that and bring hopefully that person to holiness, but you don't go back to that spot. So here we are. When you came in this morning, you were given a bookmark. Can you pull it out? Did some of you not get one? If you didn't get one, just raise your hand. Some didn't. Ushers, do we have any more left? As they come back down to the aisle and head your way, just raise your hand, they'll give you one. All right, now just take, take the bookmark. These were handmade this week. I want you to look at it. It is made out of three different colors of thread, each a distinct personality. I want you to picture that as if that is your life. And where those threads cross the other colors, those are connections of relationships. For your life is always one continuous string of relationships. If the kingdom of God is a kingdom of right relationships, then every place that you cross in those connecting points, the kingdom of God should be exposed. See, some of you think that it's just you and that person. And, and it could be just the person who delivers your mail. It could be the person that you date. It could be the person who's teaching you geometry. It could be whoever. But there's a connecting there. But you see, it's not just you two. That doesn't create what God designed. There is a third thread. And here's what Paul says, Colossians 3.14. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I want to propose to you today that at every relationship you have, no matter what level of intimacy it has, it always must have intertwined with it Jesus, the love of Jesus. Because the day will come that God will take our life and look at it, and he'll look at all of those connecting points, and he will say, ah, perfect in perfect unity. So what I'm asking you to do is take this and put it in a spot where you'll see it, whether it's in your Bible or in a book or just someplace, where you'll see it on a daily basis. And every day you look at this, I want you to ask, are all my connecting points infused and threaded through with Jesus? And you may look at it and say, "Uh uh-oh, not this one, and you may have to back up and undo some things because you didn't forgive. 
And you need to intertwine Jesus back there. You may look at it and say, I was supposed to care for that person and I let it go. And you may have to go back and care for that person. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to take that and look at that and ask Jesus, do I love as you have loved? The band's coming back up. And they're going to sing this again. And as they do, you are free after I've prayed over you and as they're singing to just stand there and ask the question, is my life connected like it should be with the love of Jesus there? Because it's in your DNA. And is there some place I need to go back and unravel a few things and bring forgiveness or caring or resources? What do I need to do? And every day I want you to ask the question, am I doing what's in my DNA? Am I revealing Jesus in those relationships? So would you stand? And just hold that. I'm going to pray over you, and then if you need to leave, please do quietly, because the band is going to pray, or is going to sing, and I'm going to invite you, if you'd like, to just come here and spend some time a little further away from the crowd and just say, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I forgiving as I'm supposed to be forgiving? Am I caring as I'm supposed to be giving? Do I have, am I understanding the longevity, the capacity, and the elasticity? So now, Father, I pray. May these who are here today understand your love for them, and may they in that same manner now reproduce that into the lives of every single person they connect with, every person, whether it's the waitress or the guy who's fixing their flat or that spouse. But may you be pleased and joyful in how you see we love others in the same way you loved us. And on this Valentine celebration, we declare that there's no love like yours, and we want to reproduce that. May others see you and us a mile away. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.